Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away. Thank you, Joel Lajanusa, and good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining me on a very special Masters Preview edition of Next on the Tee. For the third year in a row, I have the honor of having two of the greatest people in the history of the game of golf with me, and that's Peter Kessler and the legendary Gary Player. You know Peter's become a wonderful friend of the show, joining me on a semi-regular basis over the last few years. Each and every time he's been a part of the show, he makes sure it's a great golf lesson, and a great listening experience. His wonderful knowledge of the history of the game makes him the perfect co-host for a special show like tonight about the rich history of an event like the Masters. And no one has been more a part of Masters history than our other guest, Mr. Gary Player, having competed in a record 52 Masters tournaments, winning three of them, and this year will mark the 58th year he's been a part of this great event. I couldn't be more honored tonight than getting to spend the next you know, 20 minutes or so with Mr. Player here, who will join us in just a moment, and then a little bit after that with Peter, two great gentlemen, and uh, I am tickled pink and various other colors to be able to spend some time with them tonight. They'll be with me here in just a moment. Next on the T, you know, is brought to you by Seymour Putters. Check out their rifle scope technology that helped win two majors and 35 tour events. It's going to help you make more putts, too. You're really going to love the technology that they've put into their putters. Learn more about it by checking them out online at Seymour.com. That's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com. I want to kick off the show, too, like we do every single week here by saluting the brave men and women serving in our military. We want to thank all of you for your daily sacrifices, for keeping the rest of us safe. We all want to thank our veterans as well for all you've done for us over the years that you served. We truly appreciate what you do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. It's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor to have our show be a part of your network. You can find us online by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. And I also want to let our veterans know, be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. It's a great news site with articles, news events, and a wealth of wonderful information designed specifically for veterans that I'm sure you're going to find very interesting and very beneficial. Again, go to globalvoiceforveterans.org. And we also want to thank everyone listening in on iHeartRadio, as well as great radio sites across the Internet like Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Player.fm, and Blog Talk Radio as well. Plus, if someone's dragging you to the mall or to the grocery store, if you're just tired of the same old, same old on your commute, download the Player.fm or Stitcher app on your smartphone and take us with you everywhere you go. Let us give you something fun to focus on while you're out and about. 
All right. Now joining us on the Kyvin Foods guest line is my good friend, Peter Kessler. Like I say, Peter is just a wonderful historian uh, and uh, just been a wonderful friend of the show over the last couple of years. Uh, it's always such a wonderful experience for me getting to have him as part of the show when he's been able to join us. He joined us a couple of weeks ago to talk a little bit about the Masters. Obviously, we're going to do a lot more of that here tonight. Peter, thank you for coming back on the show. Always great to be with you. My pleasure. Uh, thank you. And our other guest on the uh, Custom Golf Bags USA guest line is one of the greatest golfers of all time, but also a, a Hall of Fame human being, and that's Mr. Gary Player. He's the winner of 165 tournaments worldwide, nine majors on the regular tour, including three masters, six more on the Champions Tour. He's one of only five players to have won the career Grand Slam. Rory, Rack, Rory McElroy bidding to be the sixth later next week. Mr. Player is also a great teacher of the game as well. And one thing you may not know is he's also a worldwide acclaimed breeder of thoroughbred horse races. And it's both an honor and a privilege to welcome him as, an, as a guest tonight on Next on the Tee with us. Good evening, Mr. Player. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, and I look, I look forward to speaking to you guys. So, Mr. Player, you, you first competed in the Masters in 1952. When you arrive in Augusta and you make that turn off Washington Road onto Magnolia Lane, is it like seeing an old friend every year? Absolutely, and I think the word that comes to mind is gratitude. Uh, having played in 52 uh, championships, and uh, you know when you win it three times and you finish uh, within a shot, three times of winning it, finishing second. Of course, when you finish second, as Peter and I always said, it's like, you know, only your wife and your dog know about second. You've got to win. But, uh, you know, also, I made, I made the most number of cuts in a row and also finished in the top 10 14 times. So it's been a, a very special place for me, having met President Eisenhower, and a great man like Bobby Jones, who is just a marvelous humanitarian and, and maybe, maybe, maybe the greatest golf swing that ever lived. The more I watch it on television, uh, the more admiration I have for him, swinging with an old broomstick as a, as a shaft and old rusty heads and a chamois grip and a ball that went 100 yards less. The scores he shot were quite remarkable. So all in all, uh, every time you go back to Augusta, with the dinner you have in that evening with all the champions sitting there from the past with Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, Bobby Jones, and all those great players. And now with all these new young guys, it's a, a blessing uh, to be able to be there. And the, as I say, and I'm reiterating it, I think the word is uh, gratitude. Yeah, so... You know, you were an active player in 52 of the Masters events, you know, last being in 2009. But you're there every year, like you say, for the Champions Dinner, you, the Par 3 contest, and now the ceremonial opening tee shot. So if you added it all together, you've been, you know, spent well over a year of your life on the grounds of Augusta National. So you're a significant part of, you know, what that event is. Very much so. And Mark McCormick told Arnold Palmer and myself, in the early 50s, listen, guys, you should buy yourself a house here because uh, you'll be coming back here many, many times. And we didn't listen to him, and that would have been a marvelous investment because today it's nothing to charge companies $20,000 for the week or more upwards. 
So we made a big mistake. We should have listened to him because he was so clever. But I go back to Mark McCormack. All managers should kiss the ground and thank him. Uh, he was the genius. He signs up three people to start with as a lawyer who's only making $22,000 a year. He signs Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, and Jack Nicholas as his three clients. He then signs the Pope. He then signs Twiggy, Pele, the, <laughs> the soccer player, etc., 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 and builds a massive empire. So all in all, Augusta has been a very, very special place in many people's hearts. And people we from all you. over the world watching the tournament, enjoying the beauty. Um, I would say it's the best organized tournament in the world, but they are fortunate to be able to play in the same place every year, which is a big, big advantage. Well, you know, the Pope fooled McCormick because McCormick was told that the Pope was a plus-five handicap. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was in many respects in other fields. <laughs> I've, got a qu I've got a question for you. When you look at the tour statistics, the best guy on tour for the year hits 10 out of 14 fairways. The best guy greens in regulation is 12 out of 18. If you and I went back and could look at your numbers from, the, from, from your best years, wouldn't you say you hit 10 fairways and 12 greens around? <laughs> I certainly would say that. But remember, we didn't play with a golf ball that went 50 yards further and with a metal head and a lightweight shaft. Uh, I mean, I played today, I'm in my 80th year, and I'm averaging 70 at almost 80. And I played today, never missed a single fairway. I didn't do that in my prime because the equipment wouldn't allow you to do that. All these grooves on the clubs, the greens, I mean, we played today, the greens were like a snooker table. The bunkers all uniformly raked with the machine. Sometimes we used to rake the bunkers with our feet. So it's a, it's a different world, and, and people are so silly when they make comparisons. I mean, if you Ben Hogan, who was so much better than Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson from tee to green, I mean, there wasn't even a comparison. Uh, and yet Tiger and Phil were number one and number two in the world because they were the best putters and the best bunker players because of the the 60 and 64 degree lofts and the grooves on the clubs and the conditions of the bunkers and the chipping over bunkers that you could stop the ball, whereas the fairways prior to that, they didn't lend themselves to you, for you to be able to do that. So you cannot make comparisons over time. You can only say so-and-so was the best at that time. But I will say one thing. If Tiger Woods had never, ever had a lesson in his life after he won the U.S. Open by 15 shots, if he never had a lesson, he would, have be, he would have won at least 20 major championships. Going to all these teachers, and I'm not going to be critical of the teachers, but they all spoke about different things. They got Tiger Woods so confused he didn't know where he was. I mean, the guy hardly ever hits a fairway. He hasn't won a major in seven years. And the man is so talented... He is the most talented man that ever played golf. Will he beat Jack Nicklaus's record? I don't think so. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. He's so talented.
But I know for a fact if he'd never had lessons and just continued to play with that dominating force and that great golfing ability and talent, he would have won 20 major championships. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens to this man's career in the future. Well, can Starting you just at Augusta. Can you just imagine him for a moment chipping from behind the 12th green to the front right pin placement? I mean, there's some dicey shots that he has not looked like in a long time he would be even close to being able to handle, no? Well, you see, I, we, you know, I don't know, but all I did, I watched him on television, and, uh, I mean, he was hitting chips five yards. I mean, he was the best short game player in the world, and he was hitting a little chips five yards and then blading them over the green. And, I mean, I just couldn't believe my eyes and not hitting fairways. Uh, I didn't know what to make of it. So I'm, I, don't know what to, I don't know what it is. A lot of people say he has the yips. I cannot say that. I don't know. If he does have the yips, he's gone. If he has them, he's gone. But I'm not sure if he has them or not. So we'll wait and see. And uh, so I'm anxious because golf needs Tiger Woods. We need a man who adds the television ratings to a high level. We need a man who makes sponsors happy. And we need a man who brings out people to a great extent. And nobody compares to Tiger Woods as far as those stats are concerned. So we need this man to play well, and I sure hope that he hasn't got the yips, I sure hope that he comes back and plays really well. Mr. Flair, when you and Mr. Nicholas and Mr. Palmer step up to hit the ceremonial first tee shot, do you still wish they'd let you walk after those shots and play the round? Not really. Uh, I always thought that when I stopped playing there that I would really, really miss it. But I had a feast. That's the way you can explain to somebody When you sit down to a dinner table and you have a feast, you don't leave the table saying, gee, I need more food. And I had a feast. 63 years I've been a pro. Traveled more miles than any human being ever. Only man on the planet to win the Grand Slam on the regular tour and the senior tour. And the senior tour is harder to win than the regular tour because you had to do it when you were 50. But that's where my fitness helped me and held me in good stead, that I was at almost as fit at 50 as I was at 25, and that's why I was able to go on and win the Senior Grand Slam. So I've had a great feast. I've had a wonderful uh, time in golf, made friends, designed a lot of golf courses all around the world, still busy as can be in the game of golf, still playing some you know, super senior tournaments with Jack Nicklaus as a partner, so it's been a great it's been a great journey. Speaking of friends and, and Mr. Nicholas, the unique relationship you've had with Mr. Nicholas and Mr. Palmer is any like, unlike any relationship that athletes competing against one another has probably ever had or may ever ever have. The three of you are close. Your wives are friends. You've slept at each other's homes. Talk about how rare your relationship is. I agree with you. I think it is quite a rare thing because. You don't see that happening anymore. Of course, today it's more business playing for a million-dollar first prize every week where, you know, it was hard to make a million dollars in 10 years on the tour when we played. But, 
it's a different it's a different time now but we traveled around the world to all corners of the globe promoting the game we wanted to beat each other very very badly i think when you work it out we pretty much beat each other pretty equally if you work out the number of times in, in different places in the world and it was a great friendship and still is and even to this day funny enough i still think people say to me you know who's the greatest gentleman you ever played with and i think the greatest gentleman i ever played with golf with is jack nicholas i talked to billy casper a couple of years ago about accuracy how accurate could he be with a club and he said when he was in his best years, if you put a telephone pole 40 yards away and gave him a 7-iron, that he would hit the pole 10 out of 10 times. Uh, Byron Nelson said that he used to stand on the porch at Ridgewood Golf Club in New Jersey, and he would bet the caddies that he could hit a telephone pole with a 3-iron 100 yards away, and he could hit it more times out of 10 than less times out of 10. Do you believe those stories? No, I don't believe that at all. I think uh, things get very exaggerated. It's like Mo Norman of Canada. Uh, They say he used to take a wedge off the tee because there was a bridge 100 yards from the tee, and he'd hit off with a wedge and it'd bounce on the bridge, and then he'd take his driver for his second shot because he wanted a real challenge. How many tournaments did Mo Norman win? Byron Nelson only won five major championships. Billy Casper won three major championships. If that, if they were that good, and I admired them both greatly, if they were that good, they would have won a lot more majors. So I don't believe that at all. I was talking to Nick Faldo recently, and I said to him, when you were playing your best from 75, say, to 100 yards, how accurate could you reasonably expect to be? And he said, three yards. What do you think of that? From how many yards? 75 to 100. Yes, I think that's, that's feasible. Uh, I think uh, a lot of players, a lot of players, Jerry, oh, there, there are probably 50 players in history that, that could do that. Uh, I think that was uh, quite feasible. And the game is won. You've got to remember, Pete. You know, I, I hear this all every day. You've got to see my son play. You've got to see this boy at my club. He's going to be a star. He hits the ball 380 yards already. One day he'll hit it 400 yards. I said, don't tell me that. Tell me how good he is with a putter and a chipper. You drive for show and you putt for dough. (laughs) 70% of shots in golf are played from 100 yards in. That's what wins tournaments. Not long drives. I've seen player after player at the 15th hole at Augusta, hit the ball 350 yards, the next one's in the water. Meant nothing. Every time you hold a putt of over two feet, it always means something. I want them to tell me how fit the young man is, how good his mind is, does he eat properly, does he exercise, and how great is his short game. Those are the things that make you become a superstar. And I think they were debating this morning. They said, well, what makes a superstar? I said, I think you've got to win six majors to win a superstar, become a superstar. But everybody uses the word superstar so lightly, it just amazes me. Mr. Player, when, when you won your first Masters in 1961, 
You brought your master's green jacket back home with you to South Africa. Talk about the call you got from Clifford Roberts. <laughs> I didn't know you were not supposed to take the jacket off the grounds. I was so excited that I just took it and I packed it and I was gone, back to South Africa. I get a call three days after being there, and it's Clifford Roberts. He says, Gary, how are you? I said, fine, Mr. Roberts, how are you? Well, what makes you call me? He says, Gary, did you take the jacket from the golf course? I said, I certainly did. He says, you're not allowed to do that. Nobody's ever done it. So I thought very quickly, and I always got on very well with him, and I said, well, Mr. Roberts, why don't you come and fetch it? <laughs> and he saw the funny side of things, and we had a good laugh. And he said to me, now, just do me a favor. Don't ever wear it in public. And I never, ever did. But now they're allowing the players to wear the green jacket in public. But I still don't do that even today. When you won in 1978, you shot 64 on Sunday, 30 on the back nine. You had seven birdies in the final ten holes. But as I recall, you came pretty close to shooting 27 on the back nine, didn't you? Very close. Uh, I had three putts. If you look at it on the on the, on the film that they made, the yep. three putts total total that were less than half an inch of going in. So I could have shot 27 very very easily. But in a way, I was always very happy I didn't. Otherwise, I would have never been invited back to Augusta if you shot 27. So just as well I didn't. <laughs> hey, it's it's uh, almost 50 years since you beat Kel Nagel in 65 at the U.S. Open to complete the career slam. You don't hear much about him. You never really heard much about him at that time. He didn't play a lot of international golf, but he was a heck of a player. Well, he beat Otto Palmer in the British Open. He won tournaments all over the world. He was maybe the, he was maybe the straightest hitter. He and Ben Hogan were probably the two straightest hitters I ever saw. He was a he was as good a putter as uh, as anybody playing golf today, uh, and a great gentleman. So yes, he was uh, Pete. He was a, a wonderful golfer. But you know, it's strange at that time. Uh, that's the fittest I've ever been in my life. I was squatting with 325 pounds, and uh, I'll never forget. Uh, well, one of our famous golf architects saw me squatting, and he said, "Well, Gary Player will never last." past 35 uh, with all this weight training. And then I won a tournament on the tour at 63. I looked up at the heavens and I called him by his name and I said, look, I'll be there one day, but make sure when I arrive at the golf club up there that I'm the head pro and there's a gym there with lots of weights. <laughs> Speaking of great putting, your your old buddy Bobby Locke said that his goal was 28 putts, which would represent a very good round, 30, which would represent a good round, and 32, which was acceptable, and that he had a lot of 28-putt rounds. Does that sound sort of like a familiar number to you from your career, if you had to pick a number quickly? Yes, but you must remember, I played in a lot better greens than Bobby Locke played, and today they play in a lot better greens uh, than we played. So there again, it's very hard to make the comparison you can only say who was the best putter that ever lived. And the best putter was Bobby Locke from South Africa. And now I judge, you see, I judge who's the best player. Longevity has a very, very big bearing for me. 
And the two best putters uh, have been Bobby Locke and Tiger Woods. In terms well, of longevity, talk- though, you you never lost your stroke. Jack never lost his stroke. Jones didn't lose his stroke. We don't know about what's going on with Tiger's stroke, but you're almost you're the only guys who went through the whole career without losing your putting stroke. Yeah, that's a blessing. Um, I uh, as I say, I play I play rounds of golf now. With sometimes I beat my age by 15 shots. Sometimes I'm I average beat I average beat I average 70, which is nine shots below my age. And uh, so, fortunately, my putting, I've never had a problem with my putting. And a lot of guys, most guys, I mean, you take Tom Watson. Tom Watson was a superstar. Now you're talking about a superstar. He never won for 10 years on the U.S. tour because, as he admitted himself on television, he said he became an alcoholic and it really hurt his putting, which alcohol certainly uh, destroys one's putting. There's no question it destroys the nerves it uh, in your brain cells, it attacks them and uh, it destroys your nerves. So, to and putting, honestly, you can play badly and putt well and you score well. And the two best examples I've ever seen in that, in the history of the game, were Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. But the, the worst two drivers of a golf ball I've ever seen in my life uh, who were really stars. Mr. Flay, you mentioned a little bit ago about having a sharp mind. And one thing that Mr. Nicholas used to say about winning a major was only a handful of guys think they're capable of winning a major. So you can eliminate you know, most of the field right away. And on Sunday, the rest of them are going to choke, and I'm not. Is that sort of the same view you looked at it from a, you know, guys who had a sharp mind or not? I've always said the most important thing to becoming a real champion uh, is the mind. Often people say to me, what is it that makes a superstar? And you hear 20 different versions. And I said, I don't profess to know, because if everybody did know, you'd have a lot of superstars, and there only been about 13 superstars in the history of the game. I call it, it's a little thing called it. Nobody can define it. Take Tom Weisskopf. He was better than Nicholas Palmer and player, and yet he won one major. So, and he admits it. He admits that he, he, he sulked. He admits he got cross and he, uh, you know, and picked the ball up when he shouldn't have and things like that. So, it's a little thing called it. And that little thing called it is definitely the mind is so prevalent. Uh, I was telling my, my, one of my grandchildren that when I stood on the tee with Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, they were much stronger than me. But honestly, I believed, I stood on the tee, I was so fit, I honestly believed I was, I kidded myself. I, 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 I dreamed I was stronger than they were. It's, it's a funny thing. And uh, I know one thing, I knew I was definitely fitter than they were. And I mean, even today, I mean, uh, when I think, you know, how I started weight training on the, on the tour in golf, nobody was lifting weights except Frank Stranahan and myself. It was a no-no. You couldn't. They thought we were mad. The only thing they said was, the only weights we're going to lift is that and when we have a martini is that little olive. That's the only <laughs> thing we're going to lift, nothing else. Last year at the Masters press conference, you said Augusta National shouldn't replace 
the Eisenhower tree on 17, and that that hole isn't playing as it was originally designed to play. Talk about how it was designed to play and what changes you think they should make. The tree was fine when we played off the different tee, but now that they've gone back, I don't think you need that that tree there, and I'll tell you why. Because I think they made a mistake on the 17th hole at Augusta, because you've got to, if you're going to change a hole, and I've designed over 300 golf courses, if you're going to change a hole, you've got to remember what was that green built with in mind. And that green was always built with a 9-iron, an 8-iron, and a 7-iron. And now if there's a little breeze in your face, you've got to hit a long shot in there and that green was never designed for that, so they just automatically walked the tee back, but they should have also made a slight change to the green. So the fact that they never did that, I don't think you need that tree there anymore to give it balance. Last question, and we'll let you go, Gary. Going into next week, I would say that your two favorites are Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy. What do you think? Very good choice. My, I have to go with four. Uh, I'd say uh, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, Henrik Stenson, and Jason Day. Good ones. Mr. Player, before we let you go, I have a story for you. Three years ago, Armed Forces Radio let me do a pilot of this show to sort of gauge whether their audience would like to listen to a golf show. You and Peter were the first guests to be on that pilot show. So leading up to the start of that show, I was nervous about whether, you know, when I called you, whether, whether you'd answer the phone, but then when the, the phone actually started to ring, I was, became more nervous that you actually might answer the phone. But you did, and the show ended up being a, a, a very big success. That's why we're here three years later. I don't know if you, if you realize it, but this is the third year in a row that you've joined Peter and I to do this show. I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart for being a part of it. Well, it's a pleasure, and I've always enjoyed working with Peter, a thorough gentleman, and to you yourself, and also um, for all the great people that are listening, how much we admire them. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Player. Enjoy the rest of the week. Happy Easter to you and your family, and hopefully we get to do it again next year. Take care, guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Gary Player, unbelievable. Peter, um, like I say, you know, it's uh, it's been a wonderful three years. It's an amazing thing that uh, Armed Forces Radio kind of took a look at uh, whether we we could do a golf show or not. They said, all right, we'll give you a shot. Uh, you know, do do a Masters preview show and let's see how it goes. And boy, you know, I, I hit the lottery by uh, getting the uh, the first two guests to be a part of that. There's you and uh, and Gary Player. But here we are, three years later. Uh, the show has grown and grown, and uh, it's really thanks to the launch that uh, both you and Mr. Player gave it. Well, I'm easy, but to get Gary Player was a really good coup, so nice work on that, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. So, Peter, let's talk a little bit about the Masters. You know, you're you're such a great golf historian. You know, most people know about Bobby Jones and his involvement at the Masters, but, you know, let's talk a little bit, you know, about, you know, the impact that Clifford Roberts had. We mentioned just briefly with Mr. Player, but um, talk about Clifford Roberts and, you know, what he did at the Masters, not only creating the tournament, but the mystique and the, and the tradition that's come, you know, with it. 
Well, yeah, Clifford Roberts was in the 1920s an investment banker who worked on Wall Street, and he was a big fan, as most people were, of Bobby Jones, who was arguably the most popular sportsman of the golden age of sports, and that included Babe Ruth, who was obviously as popular as you can possibly be. Mm-hmm. When Jones retired from competitive golf after he won the U.S. Amateur in September of 1930, he issued a statement and said, I'm going to not play any more competitions. He decided then that he wanted to build a golf course, and he wanted to build it down in Augusta or somewhere closer to the water because you could play there um, in the winter, unlike Atlanta, which was at slightly greater elevation where you couldn't play as much in the winter. So he was looking at properties down there, and Clifford Roberts befriended Jones, and uh, they became friendly, and and uh, it was Clifford Roberts who found the property that used to be the largest nurse, nursery in the, in the South, Berkman's Nursery, and uh, he saw the property, and he told Jones about it, and Jones went to see the property, and of course it's a very famous story that you know Jones went to this piece of property that at one time you know, had 900 varieties of apple, 1,300 varieties of pear, the first azalea bushes in the in the South, uh, the first use of concrete in the South in a building. And Jones walked around what was then the manor house, which is now the clubhouse, and you looked down the property because the whole thing is on the side of a hill. So you looked down at the property and he said, you know, this thing has just been laying here waiting for a golf course to be built upon it. And as Jones looked down the property, he uh, was able to see some of the holes that uh, exist today, particularly at the bottom of the hill where Race Creek is and 11, 12, and 13 are. So Clifford Roberts found the property. Jones loved the property. Clifford Roberts arranged the financing to get the property, which was not a particularly simple thing to do, but he's able to raise the money. And, you know, the golf club, you know, they sent out maybe 10,000 invitations to join for basically nothing, you know, all over the country. And, uh, you know, they only got a few takers. And, you know, Jones, Jones and Clifford Roberts between them were really friendly with, you know, an incredible number of wealthy and influential and successful people a number of whom joined the club and tried in their way to bring more money to the club and attract new members to the club. But Clifford Roberts is right in the middle of the whole thing, and it was Clifford Roberts' idea. Well, it's debatable because Jones wanted to hold a tournament at Augusta National after the thing was built, and he wanted to hold the U.S. Open there. But the U.S. Open had never been played that far south, and you know, there was a fear that you would have issues with the Bermuda Greens and that it was the wrong time of year and the heat may be a problem. So it wasn't at that time awarded as far south as Atlanta, which, of course, now it has been. And so Jones um, wanted to do something, and it was Clifford Roberts who said, well, let's, you know, let, let, let's have a little invitational tournament. And the first tournament was an invitational. And uh, Clifford Roberts was very clever in that, he timed the first, what we now call Masters Tournament, he timed it so that it would occur as the sports writers who were down in Florida covering the Grapefruit League, the exhibition baseball season before the season started, would then take trains back up to the Northeast and to Chicago, largely where they came from, and then less or so to the West Coast. Well, Clifford Roberts arranged for a private train 
to take these guys from Florida right to Augusta National, put them all up in hotels, took great care of them, fed them, and uh, and then got them home after the tournament. But you can imagine that you know having a tournament with Bobby Jones's name attached because he was still gold and it was only four years since his last win. So you know having Jones's name attached almost makes it instant major. And then you have the greatest you know sports writers in the world, Paul Gallico and um, and Grantland Rice writing about it. And so that elevated the status. So Clifford Roberts is right in the middle of all of this stuff, making it happen, the private trains, sending gifts out to the competitors' wives. He used to spend days and days just getting something as a little thing that would hold uh, a, a, a watch for a woman. It was just like insane the amount of times he spent on things. He was the one who came up with the idea of having the different colors to designate par or over par on a scoreboard. I mean, he he ran the club, and as Jones became progressively sicker, you know, which really starting in the late 40s he did, Jones really ran roughshod a bit over Jones. And, you know, Jones was a little bit out of it, and he couldn't get around, and Cliff Roberts took over the thing. and But everything he did basically in, as far as running the tournament, you know, has been pristine, and that's why it's the most prestigious event where, you know, everybody says it's perfect. And when they used to say to Clifford Roberts – at the end of each tournament, they say, oh, Mr. Roberts, that was absolutely perfect. He would say yes, but next year it's going to even be better. Peter, when when Gary Player won in 74, Sam Snead finished in the top 20 when he was just shy of his 62nd birthday. The year before, he had become the oldest player to make the cut at the U.S. Open at age 61. And he shot a final round 68 at the 74 PGA Championship, finished tied for third, his third straight top 10 finish at the PGA Championship. Talk about Sam Snead's ability to be a factor even into his 60s. Well, I can give you a very specific example of exactly that time period because in 1970, in 1950, uh, Sam Snead birdied the last two holes at the LA Open to catch Ben Hogan, and then the playoff was a week later, and he beat Hogan, and it was Hogan's return tournament from the accident a year before, so it was incredible that he even made it to the playoff. So Snead birdied 17 and 18, 1950. Flash forward, 1974. Sam Snead is on the 71st tee with Dave Stockton. Stockton has got the lead. Snead's in second place. He's 62 years old. And he turns to Stockton on the 17th tee and said, in 1950, I went birdie-birdie to go ahead and catch Hogan and beat him in a playoff. So they play the 71st hole, and Snead makes a birdie, and Stockton makes a par, and there are now a shot difference between them. Snead hits a great drive on the blind drive uphill, par 4, 18th hole at Riviera, into the right center of the ferry. Absolute fantastic shot. Stockton snap hooks his drive onto a, the left hill, when you are looking down the, or up the fairway of the 18th hole at Riviera, the left side is a hill. The, the, the course is built on the side of the hill right there. It's an, a natural amphitheater. And there's thick rough there. And he, he went into the thick rough. I happened to be there. It was the most curious thing. I was living in L.A. at the time, and there weren't that many people who went to tournaments. And I went to everything. And I was sitting 20 feet above Stockton on the hill, and I noticed that it was a perfect lie. It was all this thick stuff, and he had a perfect lie. 
So I'm watching, and I'm there with two or three friends. Nobody else there, like literally nobody else there. And Stockt- and Sneed comes over and, like, is standing there. He's, like, six. his ball's 60 yards away. Sneed comes over and stands there, like, right next to Stockton's bag. And Stockton says to his caddy, back him off, back him off. So the caddy moves further away, and Sneed steps a little bit away. Stockton hits three wood from 230, 236 to eight feet. Three wood. Wow. He's hit the he's hit the shot. He said fifty times since then has never come close to duplicating it. Hits it eight feet from the hole and then puts his fist under Sneed's chin. Sneed makes bogey. Stockton makes the birdie. Stockton wins the tournament. Now the day before, after the third round was over, I went out to the practice tee. Now when I tell you, there were twenty people at the driving range watching. I could be exaggerating. That's how few people would go to the practice date. <laughs> I stood directly behind Sam Sneed. I was completely alone. There wasn't one other person there. And I watched him hit balls for 30 or 40 minutes. 62 years old. Just hitting balls for 30 or 40 minutes straight is pretty cool. Right. Every shot every shot basically did the same thing. He looked to me like he was set up slightly right of target and that he would ever so slightly come over the top of it, and he would hit the shot that would start, you know, 10 feet left of the intended target line, and it just fell to the right. It did not curve. It just fell to the right. And no matter what club he hit, he hit, made the same swing time after time after time, hit the same shot with every single club, and... uh I was told that he had been somebody who was a draw ball hitter, and clearly he was not a draw ball hitter. Cutting every single shot, it was the most glorious thing to see. And it reminded me of a couple of years earlier when I was in San Diego going to school that the Tournament of Champions was played at La Costa in San Diego, and Nicholas was hitting balls on the range. And again, there was nobody there. There may be four people sitting with me, and you could sit 10 feet behind them. I mean, you have to, there was no ropes or anything. It's 10 feet behind them. As long as you weren't breathing down their neck, they didn't care. And Nicholas hit the same shape shot, except he hit it a little lower, actually, than Sneed um, with most of his clubs, now that I think about it, because Jack was known as hitting it extraordinarily high. But we stood behind Jack, and Jack hits a seven iron in those days their caddies would catch the ball they'd go out and shag them with baseball gloves and they'd have like a bowling bag that they would put the balls into jack hits the ball 150 with a seven iron and a guy next to me who i don't know says i hit it 150 with my seven iron nicholas overhears the remark he doesn't say anything he waves angelo argia his caddy back when you wave him back, it's 10-yard increments, the way it used to work. That was the hand signal. So Angelo goes 10 yards back, and Jack hits a couple of 7-irons, 160. Moves him back to 70. Moves him back to 80. Moves him back to 90. All 7-irons. And finally, Nicholas turns around and says to the guy, I choose to hit it 150 yards. But he had the same exact shape. You know, Trevino's was you know supposed to be this big cut. His ball didn't move at all, really, and his was more of a push, and then it fell a little to the right. Tiger's best balls fell a little to the right. Hogan's best balls were said to have fallen to the right, not curving, but just falling to the side. 
And so watching Snead, I was right there in 74 and watched the whole thing in glorious living color. And I, it was the most amazing thing. And you couldn't see where the power came from because it was all so fluid. With Jack, you could see where the power came from, the energetic clearance of his hips. With Tiger, you could see the same thing. With Sam, it was much smoother and more blended and less hit and more swing. And, you know, and in his time and in the 30s, he could hit the ball 300 yards. When I was reviewing the history of the Masters Tournament, I came across a quick story, Peter, about how Sam Snead played barefoot for a couple of holes. Now, I don't know if that was in the actual tournament itself. It was in 1942, and I don't know if it was a practice round or in the tournament. It didn't, it didn't clarify. But uh, it went on to say that you know, Sam learned how to play the game barefoot. So he would, I guess, occasionally go back to playing it barefoot for balance if he was uncomfortable with, you know, how he was swinging or, or how it was actually working out from the weight shift front to back. Had you, have you seen or heard him talk about playing barefoot? Well, you know, he grew up basically on a farm, and when he learned to play golf, they they played a lot of golf barefoot because they were playing it in their backyard. And so he became accustomed very early on to hitting lots of shots in his bare feet. And the way the 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 farm was set up, where they had, where they would hit golf balls from, if you sliced one, it went into a ditch, and you basically couldn't get it. If you drew the ball, you were fine. And so early on in his career, he drew the ball. But yeah, he hit a lot of balls in his bare feet. And uh, yes, he he did uh, play a few holes at Augusta National in a practice round. And he was just asked to put his shoes back on as opposed to banned from the tournament or anything bad happening. <laughs> now, Harvey Ward was thrown off of the golf course for hitting two balls into a green. May have been thrown out of the tournament. He, they were told not to hit extra shots during the practice rounds, and he hit an extra shot. And I think Cliff Roberts came down and threw him out. Um, but Sneed, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I like to hit balls on my bare feet. Where where I go hit balls, it's a pretty quiet range, especially, at, well, it's a quiet range at the end of the day, certainly. And many times I've taken off my shoes and socks. I just like to feel the grass on my feet and invariably make much better balanced swings. You end up choking down a half an inch on the club, but you know, I end up making really good balanced swings that I wish I could reproduce with my shoes on. So I know for sure, you know, that that was something he really liked to do. Peter, when you when you look back over the history of the Masters, so many great tournaments, so many wonderful memories, you know, from you know, going all the way back in history to things that, that you've read about and know about to, you know, just a couple of years ago. Which are some of the favorite tournaments when you look back that you, you know, like to call or, you know, recall or rewatch some of the highlights of? Well, I mean, you know, talking to Gary Player is a, you know, pretty good example. I mean, you know, Gary sometimes says things that you say to him, wait a minute, wait a minute. But he didn't say any of those tonight because what everything he said was completely legit about, you know, could have shot 27. The other, what he didn't say was, which was more interesting than the half-inch thing that he said, the other three putts that he, he made six birdies on the back nine. The other three, the three putts that he didn't make actually touched the hole. They touched the cup. I don't know about if they finished a half inch away, but they all three of them touched the hole, which was crazy. And mm-hmm. uh, and he was playing with Seve. Now you know at that point we 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 saw Seve 
1976, finishing second to Johnny Miller and tying with Jack at Royal Burkdale, threading an impossible little chip shot on the final hole to get it up and down for birdie. And uh, sorry, I forgot. I, I lost. I lost the thread. Where were we? Oh, so we were just talking about favorite golf tournament, you know, favorite events. Oh yes, uh, okay. So the so seventy eight. Oh yeah, so Sebi. So Sebi, you know, we'd only known about him for a couple of years at that point. Um, he had yet to win his first major, which we would he would win the next year at Royal Lytham and St. Anne's. So of all people who's playing with Gary Player in seventy eight, but Sebi Ballesteros. And Sebi's cheering him on the whole back nine. And when Gary made the final 15-footer on 18 downhill right to left, Seve was the one who was, like, cheering the loudest and gave him a huge hug. And Seve later said, and I know I know he said it to me, he said he learned how to win the Masters by watching Gary Player that day. So that one, I know people don't pick that one a lot, but, you know, that was one of the great finishes of all time by Gary Player to win that thing. And, um, you know, and he was, like, 42 years old at the time that he right. won that. So... You know, so that was pretty cool, and you know, and then you know, you you know, you just know getting around Jack in '86. You know, Jack in '75 was pretty cool. Jack in right. any year that he won was pretty cool, but '86 was amazing. I mean, he had won two majors six years before. He'd won one tournament two years before. He had not been playing well. Um, there were a number of articles going into that particular Masters referencing Jack and saying, you know, he's, he's way past it now and it's not happening. You know, and a couple of the guys that were staying in the house that he stayed with, good friends, pasted some of these articles on the refrigerator where Jack was staying, and Jack sort of used it as, you know, mental fuel to to, to prove them wrong. But, you know, he, the morning of the final round, he's on the phone with uh, his son Steve, and they said, you know, what do you think it'll take to uh, to win the golf tournament today? And Steve said, uh, I think it'll take 65. And Jack said, yeah, that's the number. And, of course, that's what he ended up shooting. But, you know, the way that he did it was so unbelievable because he wasn't really even in the tournament until the back nine because he birdied nine, ten, eleven. Now, all of a sudden, he's popped up on the leaderboard in a fairly reasonable position. Then he got, drops back because he bogeys 12, missing the eight-footer. Birdie's 13 inches up, pars 14, holds his ground, you know, and then he goes eagle, birdie, birdie, and he almost birdied 18. That putt from 40 feet was just a few inches short, dead in the mouth of the hole, too. And so right. it was the way that he, the way that he did it was so unbelievable, you know, knowing where you stand, knowing what you need, standing in the 15th fairway from 215 yards, and saying to his son, his caddy, Jackie. You know, he said, how far do you think the three will go here? And he wasn't referring to three iron, but he was referring to making an eagle. And Nicholas told me this was great. If you remember that shot, Nicholas got 215. Yep. He's got four iron in his hand. He hits it about 12 feet, exactly hole high, left of the hole. So I'm talking to him about the shot one day, and he said, well, it was fairly easy. It's a four iron from 215 over the little creek you know, within the heat of the Masters. He said, well, it was a fairly easy shot because I knew that I could miss it 10 feet right of the flag or 10 feet left of the flag, and I would have an equally difficult putt from both sides, so I had 20 feet to work with. So I tell Jim <laughs> Thorpe I tell Jim Thorpe that story, and Jim Thorpe said, I wouldn't even say that if I was talking about a wedge. 
I wouldn't be able to say <laughs> 10 feet on either side with a four iron at the Masters on the line. 10 feet either side, I knew I'd be cool. And uh, and 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 he was, and he did it. So I would say, yeah, I would say those two really stand out for me big time. I mean, I wish I had seen Arnold in 1960, even though I'm glad I'm not old enough now to have seen that, since I'm getting so old. But uh, those two, those two really resonate. Speaking of Mr. Nicholas Peter, frequently one of the former champions from the 50 plus age group makes a run to talking about Nicholas. We saw Mr. Nicholas do it in 1998 at age 58 when he finished tied for six. We saw Freddie Couples last year, Bernhard Longer last year finishing eighth. Who is somebody in the 50 plus age bracket who you think could shock us and we may see on the leaderboard at some point next week? Well, who you got? Longer is. Uh... Miguel Angel qualified for the Masters, I would suppose yeah. so. Oh, yeah, he finished great yep. last year. Right. Uh, so you got Longer, Miguel Angel, Freddie, and that's your list of heavy hitters, right? Right. Pretty much. I mean, those are your three guys. Well, you know, it's funny. Longer, after having one of the greatest years in the history of senior golf last year, of, of any golf, he was ridiculous last year, the number three right. he led the tour, tour in. He hasn't had a good start to this year, if you've noticed. He's he's actually played very iffy kind of pedestrian golf for him. A lot of tournaments finishing at even par where the winner's 14 under. He, he hasn't gotten started, so I don't know that that's, you know, a good sign going into next week. As great players always say, you know, you don't find your game, you know, at major championship sites. You bring it with you. Um but he could play. He, you know, I would look for him to make the cut. I mean, if we're handicapping the thing, I would look for longer to make the cut. I would be surprised if Freddie is as competitive early on as he tends to be, as he hasn't been doing anything particularly terrific lately. So I'm not so sure about him. I go with uh, Miguel Angel Jimenez. I, I, I think that he's uh, playing great golf. He won two of the three. You know, he won two out of three tournaments he played with. He won senior major last year. He's won others. You know, he 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 won a European event like a month ago over in Asia. Right. So he's playing really good golf. He, you know, if we're if you know, in some kind of a crazy thing, could he finish top fifteen and return again the following year? Yeah. So my best bet is Miguel on hell to finish top fifteen out of the geezers. All right. So you mentioned earlier tonight, you know, looking at, you know, who you think might be favorites, you know, next week. You talked about Jordan Spieth and Rory McIlroy. Um, who are some of the other guys that you think could make a run at this thing? Well, you know, it's funny. Gary Player said earlier in the show, you know, watch out for Henrik Stenson and Jason Day. Henrik Stenson's 38 and doesn't quite seem to rise to the occasion when it matters the very most at the end in the most important events. Just historically, that's his track record. You know, he hasn't won a few majors. You know, he hasn't done that. So, um, and he's 38 years old. So, you know, if he plays really great and he plays the best golf of his life, yes, he can win. But that's true of a lot of guys. But certainly if Henrik Stenson plays the best golf he can play, that ought to be good enough unless another player as good as he does plays as well as that. Um, so I, but I like him. I mean, I would certainly put him on the list. And the Jason Day thing is also curious to me because we act like, or a lot of folks in golf act like, he's like, you know, the, one of the greatest, greatest players of his generation. He hasn't really done anything yet. He's won like three times on tour, if I've got my number right. And, 
you know, he hasn't won a lot of stuff internationally. He's been very competitive in majors, particularly at the Masters. But yeah. you have to do more than be competitive. You have to, like, close the deal, you know, in something important now and again. And he hasn't really done that. Um, and that's why I like I like my two picks better, even though I would lean Spieth over McElroy because McElroy reminds me of Mickelson in, in one respect in that he's so wildly inconsistent. You know, one of the great things about Tiger and one of the unusual things about Tiger was his consistency of top tens and winning 26% of the tournaments he played in, Nicholas second at 12%. But Nicholas, if you were being fair and you cut off his career at like 40, it would be a much bigger percentage, like 16 or 17%. Um, But, you know, Rory's all over the map. You know, he's like Phil. You know, he has three or four good weeks a year, and last year he picked the right three or four weeks. But then, he, you know, and he didn't do anything the previous year. This year, I mean, he, 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 he did good, you know, five or six tournaments ago and won a couple of things and had a second in there as well. Um, but he hasn't played good the last few weeks. You know, the last few times we've seen him, he's played very, very iffy golf. And, you know, do you magically, because it's Augusta National, your game rises up because you're going down Magnolia Lane? I don't think, I don't buy into any of that stuff. You know, if he's not playing good going into next week, he's not playing good. You know, and long and crooked won't do you any good there. I mean, you can be a little offline and be fine. Phil Mickelson certainly gets away with it. But um, I, I think that Rory's been wildly inconsistent, and he's a wild card even though that would be a great plot for Roy Rackleroy to complete the career slam at the Masters. But I'd go right. with Speed and J- Jimmy Walker. Let's not, yes. not forget Jimmy Walker. Jimmy Walker's been playing some super-duper golf one five times indeed. in 18 months. Huh? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, he. Uh, yeah, so he's been super. I, I really like his chances. He hits the ball really, really high. He's a super-duper putter. He putted better than anybody else in the field last week. Very, very consistent. And the same for Spieth. Spieth's been playing consistent golf. He's got a chance to win the golf tournament again this week. I mean, he has just been his last two starts, first and second, and he's leading a tournament with one now to go. And next week's the Masters. Hmm, who do you like? I would go with Jordan Spieth, even though it means nothing. If Jordan shoots a pair of 72s to start the tournament, that's it. And 72 is not a horrible score at Augusta National. You just need a couple of sloppy bogeys. You just need an unfortunate double somewhere. You know, that's why You know that's why we let the golf tournament happen, because we don't know who's going to win. That's why they run the horse race anyway, even though the favorite you think is going to win, but they run them anyway. So, you know, any there's there's 15 guys who could win, and then there's always a surprise possibility. You know, Mike Weir on Hell Cabrera was a surprise when he won. So, you know, you get the occasional when Bubba won the first time, that was a surprise, and the guy that he beat in the playoff, Louis Eustazen, was would have been a surprise. So, um, lots of funky things can happen at Augusta National, but usually every great player. I think it's true. Every great player has won the Masters, except for Lee Trevino, right? Every great player right. except for Lee Trevino has won the yeah. Masters, and 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 Hagen, but he didn't get a chance to to win the Masters. But you know, great careers in many respects are defined by more than any other championship. You're having picked up a a, a Masters tournament. 
Um, you know, Sam Snead's missing a U.S. Open. Arnold's missing the PGA. Tom Watson's missing the PGA. Trevino's missing the Masters. <laughs> That's one of the unusual ones. And Greg Norman, of course, with the tragic record of two British Opens and no Masters when he could have easily won four or five, you know, is the height of he must. I said, do, I, do we have a couple of minutes? Absolutely. I said to him uh, once, you know, how often do you think about, you know, losing all four majors and playoffs and not having won, you know, three of the four majors? Of course, you could have easily done. And he said, if you're asking me if I've ever woken up in the middle of the night and said, oh, my God, I can't believe I haven't won the Masters. I can't believe I haven't won the PGA. I can't believe I haven't won the U.S. Open. He said, it's never happened. And I looked at him like, no freaking way <laughs> have you not woken I said, I've woken up in the middle of the night about your losses. So I know you've woken up in the middle of the night about your losses. That I've never, it's never, ever happened. I said, you are so full of it. Get out of here. So we, we had a nice dialogue about that. Uh, you know, and of course, his defeat there in, in, in 96, year after Jack's greatest defeat, when was the greatest defeat, you know? So, you know, his his championship career was defined largely by misses in major championships, but most notably at the Masters, where he had a number of opportunities. Right. Peter, just a couple more before we let you go. If Tiger comes out and shoots a couple of rounds in the upper 70s, misses the cut, could that be all we see of him for a while? Yeah. I mean, do you think he's going to make the cut? No. I don't think he's going to make the cut. I mean, you know, like I was saying to Gary, he didn't answer it directly, but, you know, you're over the back of that 12th green. That thing is like a sheet of ice leading down into the water. I mean, if you a fraction thin, a fraction thin, you're wet. You know, the the downhill pitch for the third shot on 15, should you have to have that 60 to 100 yarder, you're hitting downhill from a downhill lie. It's, it's, you have to take it so, so cleanly. And, you know, and, you know, the pros that I've talked to all say the same thing to me, which is, Peter, chipping is the easiest part of the game. The club moves the briefest amount, and sometimes including the putter. You know, if you take a straight-faced club from the edge of the green, you may only take it back six or seven inches and through the same amount. They said that's golf's basic stroke, and it moves on the same arc as a full swing. And if a good player isn't chipping well, his issues much run very, very deep. You know, Hank Haney said he has the yips. I mean, who hasn't said he has the yips? When you know, I watch him chip, I'm, what would you call it? It's not, right. you know... It, you know, they tried to make excuses and say, well, you know, he's into the green and the t- light, the, t- the lies are very tight. Well, nobody else had the problem into the green and the lies are very tight. So I'm nervous for him. I'm very nervous for him next week. I, I'll i be shocked if he's completely turned around his chipping and he can hit him the height he wants. I asked Faldo, I said, how much room did you, do you have when you chip for your landing spot? And he said, "Imagine an 18-inch circle in diameter." Oh he said, my. "If you can hit," he said, "If you can hit the 18-inch circle," he said, "Then you can hit a good chip." And he said, "And," he said, "There's sometimes if you're wrong by two yards from the fairway on an approach shot, that it's a difference between 10 and 50 feet." He said, "The he said the the lines are so tight, and 
and so stressful. You know, so Tiger hitting 18-inch spots. And, of course, you're not just hitting the 18-inch spot, but you're hitting it at the right height and at the right power. So, I mean, I just think it would be one of the miraculous things of all time if he comes out and makes the cut. Just makes the cut, I think, will be unbelievable. I am very fearful for him. Yeah, and I agree with that statement as well. Peter, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the things that you're doing, plus how they can find the classic interviews you've done with you know the greatest players in the history of the game online. Well, I suppose that's the only interesting thing to, to mention at the moment. I'm working on some stuff, and perhaps next time when we talk, we can talk about them. But the, the, a lot of the shows that I did with uh, the greatest players of the last century – the audio portion is now available on iTunes, the Peter Kessler Show, and I've posted about 75 or 80 conversations from Tiger Woods and Sam Snead and Gene Sarazen and Byron Nelson and Nicholas and Player and, and pretty much every player of the last century except for Ben Hogan, who was too sick, <laughs> and, excuse me, Mickey Wright, who we didn't get. Perhaps I didn't persist hard enough, but literally those are the only two players we didn't get. So 75 or 80 of them are posted, and so many of those people are no longer with us. Well, Peter, it's been a special night for me. I thank you so much for joining me again this year to do a Masters preview show with, with, with Mr. Player as well. It's always such a privilege for me to get to spend time with you, so I thank you very much for being generous with your time and being back this week. Oh, I love doing the show with you. Gary loves doing the show. I got a communication from his son. We're we're trying to work on something to do a documentary with Gary, and he sent me an email saying that, you know, Gary was excited that he was doing the show. And so it's more than somebody saying to him, okay, now you have a radio show. Pick up the phone right now. You know, he knew the radio show was coming. He knew he liked being on the show. He remembered doing You know, so it was a very nice compliment to you. He was very pleased to do the show. No, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that very sure. much. Peter, happy Easter to you and uh, and your you family, too, buddy. and uh, I look forward to having uh, ha- having you back real soon. And enjoy the Masters next week. Same to you, and let me know uh, when you want me back, and I'll be ready for you. Fantastic, thank you, Peter. Thanks, pal. All right, good night. Wow, what an absolutely wonderful event. Holy smokes, to get the opportunity to talk to Mr. Player and and then spend some time one-on-one with Peter. I tell you, it uh, it just really doesn't get any better than that. Uh, Before we wrap up the show, folks, I want to uh, give a a moment to uh, our friends over at Seymour Putters. Take a listen. We'll, we'll, We'll wrap it up on the other side. Golfers, has this happened to you? Great drive. Perfect second shot on the green. Only the three or even four putts shaking your head all the way back to the cart. I have good news. Help is on the way with the Seymour Putter. The Seymour Putter Company patented RST technology sets up the putter perfectly every time using a visible gun sight on the top line. Genius. It's like locking radar onto the target. In this case, the golf hole. Putting the golfer in perfect position to make a reliable and consistent stroke. The 1999 U.S. Open and 2007 Masters Champions both use, you guessed it, the Seymour Putter. So if you're ready to make more putts and take strokes off your game, log on to Seymour.com. That's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com and put a Seymour Putter in your bag today. 
I'll tell you what, folks. When I got my Seymour putter, I dropped three balls down about 10 feet away, and all three right in the dead center of the cup. And I said, sold. Sign me up. How do I get one of these? And now they're a sponsor of the show. They have dozens of models, one that's sure to fit your eye and your preferences. To get more information, go online at Seymour.com, and that's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com. Before we close up shop, I want to let you know about a great book from some other friends of ours, Dave Stockton and Dave Stockton Jr. It's called Own Your Game. Most of us still trying to get through the weather, still trying to wait for it to warm up a little bit, haven't had the opportunity to get out there and sharpen our games yet. So let's start the golf season by getting our minds right. We talked about that so much tonight, about the mind and the power of the mind, because so much of the game is played between our ears. In this latest book, the Stocktons lets you know how to use your mind to play winning golf. Own Your Game recreates the experience of riding 18 holes with Dave Stockton at one of his highly sought-after corporate outings and draws from his experience as a Champions Tour player and a revered coach. He, he helps you with how to think better, how to stay calmer, execute more consistently. We heard about that tonight. And most importantly, how to enjoy the game more thoroughly. So go to StocktonGolf.com to get your copy, and for a couple extra dollars, he'll even autograph it for you. All right, everybody, it's time for me to put a bow on this one. My sincere thanks once again to Peter Kessler and Gary Player for being such great guests with me tonight. And I thank you the very most for tuning in. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host uh, uh, Bob Lazari and our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Blog Talk Radio, starting at 10.15 Eastern Time on Armed Forces Radio, and on Friday nights, you can hear us from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Boost Radio, and then again starting at 11 p.m. Eastern Time back on Armed Forces Radio. We're joined every week by legends from around the NFL and the CFL. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. And you can stay up to date with everybody that's going to be you know, our, our, our archive shows, plus people that we are going to have, some of our future guests. You can find us online at nextonthetea.net for this show. That's nextonthetea.net and ThursdayNightTailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our episode, archive episodes for free uh, by going to either site. Thanks once again for choosing to listen, folks. We appreciate you so much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. And this is my impression of a drill instructor directing a musical. Town hut! Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, left, left and step ball change.
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers.